So it was a rare Sunday night. I was home and could just sort of kick up for a little while and watch 60 Minutes. Not too long ago, they ran a story. It was a repeat of an earlier story they had run called Dead or Alive. You see, it seems that when they say you're dead, it's awfully hard to prove that you're alive. When they say that you're dead, it's awfully hard to prove that you're alive. The story featured conversations that Scott Pelley was leading with several people. There was Don Pilger, who had reported to the Social Security Administration that his wife had died. And somehow there was a mix-up on the other end, and so it was reported and recorded as if though he had died. So when he went to withdraw money for the bank that week, they said, uh, Mr. Pilger, we have a problem. According to our records, your account is frozen because you are dead. <laughs> it was sort of laughable in the moment, but it was a little bit of a nuisance and a hassle to finally get things straightened out. It's hard to prove you're alive when they say that you're dead. Christina Pace was a college student when the same thing happened to her. Somehow, just all it really takes is one digit being off in somebody else's social security number, right? And it gets recorded to your social security number. She was a college student. She went to register for classes, and they said, Christina, we have you no longer enrolled here because our records indicate that you're dead. How would you like to be a college student facing that, you know, trying to put that together? And then Betty Denault. Uh, went in to renew her driver's license, and DOD showed up in the corner, and she said, what does that mean? And it says, date of death. <laughs> and it took her a long time to extricate things and prove that she, in fact, was who she said she was, and that she was very much alive. Story after story like this, there are actually thousands of people who mistakenly appear on the government's official dead roll, as it's called, I hope I don't end up there. I, I'm hoping that doesn't happen to me before it's time, I guess. Judy Rivers had it maybe worst of all of the people that were profiled. Uh, in her case, it led to her defaulting on her mortgage and then losing a car and then ending up living in a trailer because they could not sort it out in spite of repeated efforts by many people working on her behalf. To, with these credit agencies and with the banks and with everybody to prove that she was very much alive. It's hard to prove that you're alive when they say that you're dead. That reminds me a lot of the Easter story. On that first Easter morning, it must have been really confusing. I mean, after all, the Roman authorities had already put the numbers into the system on Friday. Jesus was dead and gone. We're glad that we are done with him. The records had been changed. It was clear to everyone that he had died on that cross. He had been sealed away in a tomb. And so on Easter morning, they are not expecting at all to greet a living Christ. When the women come to the tomb, it's to pay respects. It's to finish what they had started in haste before the Sabbath came. They want to properly anoint the body. They want to come and give their devotion to this one that they called teacher and master, their friend. But what they're greeted with is an empty tomb and a lot of questions. 
And then an angel, a messenger, who says to them, Do not be afraid. You're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. But it's hard to convince people that you're alive when it was so clear that you were dead. Now, we know the whole story. We who stand on the other side of Easter, we get it, don't we? But on that first Easter morning, it was not so easy to tell what had happened. We've been living through a really powerful experience of what we know as Holy Week, but what Jesus' disciples and followers knew as the most horrible week that they could have ever experienced. Between Palm Sunday last week, a Sunday ago, and now we as a congregation have made our way through the Passion Narrative And we did it in a special way this year. We had, uh, this sanctuary was transformed into an art gallery. And we used pieces of art, many of them created by members of our own congregation, to help connect us to these particular stories. And if you were here and got to walk the Stations of the Cross, you got to move through that in a powerful and deep way. I had people tell me this was the most, uh, the deepest, most spiritual engagement they've ever had with the Passion Story. And so here we had Amanda Shulkowski's boot. It's just called ASP work boot. And it is, a, it is modeled in clay after the work boot that her sister wore at Appalachia Service Project one summer. 50 hours it took her to make this. It's sitting on the welcome desk on your way out. You'll marvel at the detail when you see it. And we tied that to the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. All of their feet. Even those who had been betrayed. This piece that's in the style of classical icons was created by Beverly Williams, one of our older members of our church. She had just started taking classes at the Odenton Senior Center in painting. And look at what she's been able to create. This piece sat in this corner over here along with artwork from our children, and it was called Jesus in the Garden and Jesus Praying. And so we remember those lonely, agonizing hours that Jesus spends Not my will, God, but your will. Robustiano Aponto had a piece that sat right here, and Robustiano is uh, learning English as a second language, and he's being taught by a member of our church who invited him to take his faith. She knew he had a deep faith, and to combine it with his talents, and he created this for our exhibit. And he talked about how he imagined Jesus being mocked and spit upon and laughed at. This is Summer Doss's piece. Summer is a senior at the Severn School, and she's bowing her head really low here in the front row, so you won't see who she is right now. But I might be pointing in her general direction. <laughs> and it was, it was her piece, really, that I saw earlier this winter that inspired this whole gallery and this whole Holy Week stations. This is a project I've been wanting to do for years, at least 10 years, maybe longer. And when I saw this piece that Summer had created, a pieta, Mary holding Jesus. It's a classic work of art that she had updated and contemporized. A beautiful piece. I said, this is the year we had to tell this story through the art. This is what the disciples were living that week. All of these emotions, all of these moments. Scott Phillips created this piece. And what you can't tell from the slide, but you can see it when you look at it, it's out in the lobby area. 
is that the two crosses on either side of the central cross in the middle, the crosses that represent the thieves that were crucified side by side with Jesus, the one who begs forgiveness and mercy and the one who mocks Jesus, side by side, they are made out of mirrors so that when you face this mosaic, you decide which cross you fall in. This is a piece that's sat right in that window over here, maybe the most dramatic piece we had in all of the exhibit. It's a piece created by Leonard Kashansky, who also has pieces at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, the Philadelphia Museum in uh, Philadelphia, the Chicago Institute of Art, and now he can put on his resume that he had a piece of art right here at Severna Park and I met this church. I'm sure that's going to get him a few new jobs. We had tied this dramatic piece that he describes as a moment of entrapment. A moment when you decide whether you, whether you fight or you flee. And we tied that to the story of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Bailey Chasser had this sculpture. I'd actually sat down with her and looked at her whole portfolio. She had another piece that she really wanted to be in the exhibit. It was her favorite piece, and truth be told, it was my favorite piece too, but it didn't fit for what we were trying to do here in Holy Week as we were leading up to Easter. It didn't fit, so this piece fit. These are sculptures she had created about the mask that she wears, the emotions she wears, and if there is an emotional week in the whole scripture, it is the Passion Week. Emotions of anger and fear, sadness and regret, great despair. The piece that she had wanted to use, it's not because I didn't like it, I liked it a lot. The piece that she really wanted to contribute was really an Easter piece, I thought. It was this one. This animal breaking free of the bonds. And I picture that as the moment between Good Friday that we just came through and Easter Sunday where we sit right now. We don't know what it was like in that tomb. There were no, uh, there were no drones overhead. There were no video surveillance cameras at all. But I imagine it was something like this. Jesus bursting the bonds of death and breaking free into new life. And so we sit here on Easter Sunday People living with the good news, the great news of resurrection and hope. The word that from the tomb, from a messenger, he is not here, he is risen, he will go before you. Do not be afraid. And when the women uh, walk a little bit farther, they encounter Jesus himself. And he says the same three words, do not, be, that's four words actually, do not be afraid. I can't count. Do not be afraid. And in a world where we know too well the fear of terrorist attacks in Brussels, the fear of a loved one getting sick, the fear of losing a job at the wrong stage of your life, we need to hear those words of hope and resurrection too. Do not be afraid. I go before you. I go before you.
And so what response can there be to this great good news of Easter, to this one who comes to bring life and hope and joy? What words can we put on our lips? What words can we put into song? Well, you know the words that we use on Easter, right? It's the word that we've already sung several times over in our hymns. It's that Easter word. What's the Easter word? Alleluia. Alleluia. Praise be to God. It's this overflowing of joy. And it makes me wonder, what would it be like if we turned our lives into living alleluias? If somehow our lives bore witness, just like the early women who came to that tomb, who our lives somehow pointed back to the good news that Jesus is alive in the world and we're still following him. We're following him in the ways of servanthood. We're following him in the ways of compassion. We're following him in the ways of hope. We're following him believing that this is not all that there is, but we live life at its deepest and its fullest and even a life beyond death and a life that is available to us now. So I've been thinking a lot about Easter lately, and it made me think of somebody I'd like to introduce you to. The connection may not appear apparent right from the start, but bear with me. His name is Speedo, (laughs) ma'am. If you live in the Annapolis area, you may have seen him yourself. I've seen him many times on my drives to work. How many of you have ever seen Speedo, man? Or you know who I'm talking about? Speedo Man is a legend. I joined his Facebook page this week. He has a fan page. He's a guy that runs at all seasons of the year in just one thing, yes, a Speedo. You can see on the hood of this car, that's sort of a a Christmas decoration. It's freezing out here. He's running in the rain here. He's running in, in beautiful daylight here and warmth. And I've seen him summer and fall and winter. And I marvel at this guy because he is just out there doing his own thing in his own way. And he has attracted this amazing following because he's sort of a mystery man. He's just out there by himself. People will say hi to him and he'll just keep running. He just keeps running. There are packs of runners that run together and he just runs uh, to, the, to the beat of his own drum. This Speedo man. There's even on the Facebook page a sighting of him in real life. <laughs> and the posting of this was, Speedo man buys beer and eats food? Question mark. Just this mystery man, this amazing man. But I, I marvel, here's a guy who has made a reputation for himself by this one singular thing, right? He is the Speedo man. And I wonder, what would it be like if I could live my life in such a way that there was a taste of grace that was, ran deep, that there were signs of love and gentleness, and that there was a welcome and embrace of people that no one else seemed to hang out with. If I could live my life in such a way that it gave glory to the risen Christ and pointed to his life, and that I could be the hallelujah man, the hallelujah man, or that you could be the hallelujah woman, What would it be like? Wouldn't you love it if somebody put a Facebook page, a fan page to you as the Hallelujah Woman? I was joking earlier, we already have the Hallelujah Woman in our congregation. Her name is Helen White. For those of you who know Helen, Helen was on the back waving her banners earlier singing today. She is the Hallelujah Woman. Although Michelle McVeigh was rocking it out at at the 930 service, she might be rivaling it too. 
But what would it be like if you and I lived our lives so that people looked at us and they saw not just us, but the living Christ living in us? The hallelujah man, the hallelujah woman. In every season of life, whether it's raining or it's icy or whether it's hot or things are going well or things are not going well, if you could show that kind of devotion, what would it be like to be known as the hallelujah man or the hallelujah woman? But you know, the longer I thought about that, I don't think that that's enough. Because I know for myself that I can't sustain that kind of life on my own. I need a whole community around me to do that. I need people who worship with me. I need people who study the Bible with me. I need people who go on mission trips with me. I need people who pray for me. I need people to walk this way of life Finding our way again, as we've been doing all through Lent. I need a community of people. I don't want to just be the hallelujah man. I want to be part of the hallelujah chorus. When you think of the hallelujah chorus, what do you think of? Besides George Frederick Handel, which is probably the first thing, but who do you picture in your mind's eye and listen to in your, in your, your head singing it? Anybody? Our choir, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly our choir. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir, that's right. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir this year did an amazing project to create a virtual hallelujah chorus where they invited anybody to come and sing with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which, by the way, I learned a really cool fact. They, they refer to themselves, to this new generation, as the Motab. <laughs> Never knew that before, did you? The Motab. And so they did this great outreach project. And you could, you could go and sit in front of your own computer and pick the alto part. And the, and the music would scroll in front of you. All you needed was your headphones and an, and an audio jack. And you could sing and submit your own video to be part of the Hallelujah Chorus with the Motab or the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Pretty cool. I'm really bummed. I found out about this just like two days before the deadline. And I did not get my act together to do this. But I did watch what came about. And it was stunning because it starts with scenes of the choir as you expect them to, to appear and then suddenly all of the voices of others come in and the images and, well, take a look for yourself.
you're going to have to wait for our choir to sing the rest of that. But don't you love to see the faces of all the others that joined in? And I love the idea, the theology of this project, that anybody, anybody would be welcome to sing Hallelujah Chorus. Because all are invited to be part of that. I want to be part of the Hallelujah Chorus. I want to be God's Hallelujah Man. I want you to be God's Hallelujah Woman. I want us together to sing Hallelujah. Our lives to show forth such life and generosity, such hope and such love that people point to the risen Christ and say, that's the only thing that it could be. That's the only reason they would live like that. Pope John Paul II said this. He said, do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are the Easter people and hallelujah is our song. We are the Easter people, and hallelujah is our song. May it be your song this day. May it be our song. Amen.